Okay, so next we have Hajin. We want, I just want to take a second here to see if we can make sure that you can get your slides up and showing so everyone can see them. Oh, is it going? Okay. Yep, we're seeing Great. new slides. Great. Hooray. All okay. Right. Work around. Yay. Oh, work, work around. around. Um, uh, well, that's perfect tie-in to you. I just want to say thank you so much for having me and Sherry and Natalie for you know, making this work hybrid so that I could be here and others. So it's, it's just like so wonderful to be here. And so um, in these like really important, interesting conversations. So my project is so well grouped with Xilings because it's about, um, you know, one of the sort of moral objections to that have been made consistently against market-based instruments and, and um, these pricing instruments. So um, next slide, I will just talk briefly about the background and motivation. This audience knows most of this already, so there's not much. I'll go fairly quick, talk about the theory, um, preliminary results. They're more like real results now, but you know, I'm still like going through everything, and then we'll move into the discussion. Um, okay, so next slide, please. And then you can hit twice so that you see both maps. Okay, great. So this is, um, you know, Sheeling basically said lots of carbon prices. There are lots of carbon prices now. Um, that's true. Of course, there aren't that. Uh, many of them are not like really strong or, or cover very much of the economy. Um, but the point is, we're seeing a growing use, uh, an increasing use of market-based instruments. And next slide, please. Um, I th I'm sorry, I have lots of animation. So Natalie, this is going to be very annoying for you and I apologize in advance. Um, if you, maybe the best thing is just to pull up all of the, all of the text that's on that slide and then I won't have to keep saying next. Is it all there? I can't tell. Okay, so, um, you know, really briefly, we like these instruments. We tend to like these because it gives a lot more flexibility to the market. So the market ferrets out who the cheapest cost abater abaters are, and those are the people who abate more than um, people for whom abatement is more expensive. Um, and of course, it encourages beyond compliance, uh, pollution reductions, and as Sheeling talked about at length, there's revenue recycling. Next slide. Um, and we can do the same thing where we just pull up everything on the slide. Okay, so um, problems, of course, are if you have a market-based instrument, like a, actually a performance uh, performance mandate, um, it's you you it's it's harder to administer. You have to it's it's more expensive to monitor than if you just say, hey, put a scrubber on top of your smokestack. Um, sometimes you don't need those administer uh, you don't need to incur those administration costs because it's easier just to have a ban if you know it's a very toxic or bad um, bad item. There's also a host of moral objections that Sheeling just went through. So we worry about hotspots for things that are less uh, firm specific, um, but a little also with the you know revenue recycling and the um, the eventual impacts of carbon taxes. You worry about distributional concerns. So like, are basically is this going to be a regressive carbon tax? This is why, of course, British Columbia does. You know, a lot of these places um, try to use the revenue recycling in fact to make um, the the pricing instruments less regressive. But the focus of my presentation is going to be on this um, concern, this this commodification concern that when you are entering a market, you are taking something sacred and you are making it just another commodity that is bought or sold, and therefore you reduce environmental care or the stigma to pollution. So Michael Sandel is the most famous person for having said this, but lots of people have said it. I think uh, Steve Kalman in the 
articulated this much more clearly than Michael Sundell before him, um, but that is the uh, moral stigma or anti-commodification critique. Um, okay, so I'm, again, just pulling up all of the, all of the text on the next slide. Um, I think I see it up in the, in the room. So there is some previous work on this, um, and some of it suggests like, okay, this is empirical work, trying to do a horse race between different types of regulations and seeing does it change the moral stigma of regulation. So there is some work that suggests that polluting under a tax looks less bad than um, being fined. But of course, there you're comparing a le like polluting legally under the tax versus polluting and being fined, so doing something illegal. So I don't think that's like a really apt comparison. Really what you want to do is, is polluting legally under a tax versus polluting legally under a mandate. How are those different versus violating both? There's also a huge motivational crowding literature, but that stuff usually tries to see how do any external incentives, be it a, a fact, sorry, be it a fine, a price, or actually government mandates, how do they change internalized norms? And so they're not really doing the horse race that we're looking at. There's some evidence against. So Lira Strahilovitz has a paper, a nice paper looking at when San Diego um, changed its carpool lanes to say, okay, either you can't do solo, solo driving, and if you do, you get a fine, to, okay, you can, now you just have to pay a fee in order to do this. That um, that resulted in actually more carpooling and less cheating. But of course, as they changed the system, this wasn't a randomized control experiment. And so like you can see that like more people in San Diego may have moved to carpooling just because they were learning more about the program that, that was already in place. Um, and there's this uh, really nice and interesting experimental game where um, in order to abstract away from pollution, these authors, Bratton, Brecky, and Rogberg, they... Um, they created these harm-creating stickers that were essentially just externalities, negative externalities. Uh, it's a, it was basically like a common pool game, and they found that it, um, like people didn't mat care about trading so much. So, which suggests like, oh, there's not that moral stigma. It, it, it did, um, like, it, it suggested like, oh, there's not really much of a moral stigma uh, difference. But they were evaluating trading and not actually the stickers, and so it seems like a bit of a different setup. So I said, okay, um, next slide, please. Let's look at all of the reasons why this paying to pollute, this anti-commodification theory could work or couldn't. There's, uh, because I thought there might be reasons um, in both directions. So on the one hand, with expressive function of law, when the government is saying, look, let's use a, mar a market-based instrument, that could signal to people like, this is not a, that important. This is a market frame. Um, and so as a market frame, like maybe it's just not, the pollution is not as bad or as harmful as we thought it was going to be. And so that would support the anti-commodification objection. But counter to that, I think there are two potential impulses at least. So one is people might say, see a market-based tax or cap-and-trade instrument and see, oh, well, actually this is, um, this is really a bigger issue than the government thinks it is. I think this is a fairly ineffective or light instrument. These are, of course, just lay intuitions. And so I, I'm happy to talk about, like, you know, it truly, like, what are the differences? But the lay perception may be, like, this is not really a, um, a strong instrument. And the government isn't fully capturing how bad this is. So this is worse than they think it is. I call that inadequacy aversion. And, of course, there's a lot, huge literature on taboo trade-offs where when people think that something sacred is being traded against secular values, so the sort of canonical examples are kidney sales or sales of babies, um, 
people feel more moral outrage. And so everything around the system becomes more tainted. And so interestingly, the the like the thought that this is the wrong type of instrument could actually increase the moral stigma of pollution. Okay, so next slide, please. Um, this is just to um, introduce you to the way I, so I use structural equation modeling it to, um, to think through or to like analyze my data and see like how these competing forces might be in effect. And this is just to introduce like the exact same ideas um, in a structural equation model path diagram. So you have the condition and that, how does that affect moral stigma? I, I posit that there are like these competing paths, the expressive effect might reduce moral stigma in line with the anti-commodification theorists, but it might also increase, push to increase moral stigma be through an inadequacy aversion effect or um, a taboo trade-off moderation, um, which is you can think of just as like an interaction effect. So for people for whom the environment is very sacred or who think markets for pollutions are very bad, they may be more likely to say, oh, this is really, really bad. And so they get they you see an increase in moral stigma for them. Uh, whereas if people think like, oh, who cares about the environment, that you might not see that that increase. And so it's just saying like it might be there might be um subpopulation effects there. Okay. So what did I do in the study? Um the next slide, please. It should be study overall, and then it goes down to participants answered dependent measures. So the question is. Do market-based regulations reduce the moral stigma of pollution? I introduced uh, participants to a new pollutant, malzine. I spent a ton of time talking to ChatGPT to come up with this fictitious name that has no actual uh, real real world. It's it's like not a, a totally fake name, but it like you know evokes benzene and mal is bad. Um, I made it relatively light touch, so it causes asthma and harm to plants, and that's because I didn't want a ceiling effects where participants said, oh, it's if it causes cancer and death, everyone's going to think it's bad no matter what, no matter what the regulatory frame is. Then I randomly assigned participants to four conditions, the control with no regulation, command and control mandate. Um, this was a performance mandate because the Clean Air Act and Clean Water Act are usually like mostly performance mandates, um, a pollution tax, or a cap-and-trade program, just the canonical forms of market-based instruments. Participants then answered these dependent measures, which I'll talk about in the next slide, and mechanism questions. So on the next slide, I had, oops. Um, so I had several groups of key dependent measures. So the first was just um, three, three overall moral stigma of pollution measures. So how, how morally bad do you think this is? That's moral stigma. How harmful do you think this is? And like, um, how much? How likely are you to protest malzine, um, companies emitting malzine, limit your own activities that emit malzine, and um, and do things like uh, sign petitions or protest for more regulation? So that's a composite variable for behavioral intentions. And on this overall moral stigma measure, because of the competing effects I just talked about, I predicted in my pre-registration null effect or a very small effect. Um, and the like a economically mean, meaningless effect. Another and another um, dependent measure I checked was okay. Alpha Corporation is polluting in compliance with the instrument, so in compliance with the mandate, with a set limit, or in compliance with the tax, or in compliance with a cap and trade program. Here, because I, I, I thought this was like a cleaner horse race than sort of what the previous studies had done, and also it, it counters some of the. Um, some of the anti-commodification critique, which is basically like, oh, you would never allow people to pay to litter because 
there the critique of comparing a full-on ban to like a price-based instrument. And so I wanted to say, no, very cleanly, how does it, um, how does moral stigma compare if you're complying with the legal instrument or violating it? And in compliance, I thought, okay, actually here, I think it will look better to be in compliance, less moral stigma if you're in under the mandate than the market-based instrument, because the mandate has a categorical, this is okay to pollute, whereas the market-based instrument doesn't have that. So if you go to the next slide, um, this is what my sort of overall moral stigma um, theory is. But the slide after that, you'll see that expressive effect turns to blue if you're polluting in compliance, because here um, for the uh, market-based instrument, the, they look worse for polluting compliance. They're still paying a tax or paying for allowances under the cap-and-trade system, whereas under the mandate, they're not. Okay, so the next slide. Um, finally, I also asked how how good or bad does beta corporation look for polluting in violation of the instrument for the tax or the cap-and-trade? That means polluting more than they paid they paid for. So it was equivalent. So everybody had paid for or were allowed, was allowed to pollute 10 tons. Um, but we're polluting 13 tons. So in the mandate condition, that's just more than the limit. And in the tax and cap-and-trade pollution, that's three tons more than they were paying for. Here, I didn't have a prediction because I thought they, were, they might be competing effects. And so I just said, okay, I, I just want to ask the question. Okay. Um, uh, next slide. So I should be under study administration. Um, and if you can pull up everything there. Um, so I... I applied to the time-sharing experiments for social sciences program, which peer-reviewed and then accepted the, to run the study, which means they paid for all $50,000 worth of the study, which was great. So thank you very much, Tess. Um, I pre-registered it, and then NORC ran the study this past fall using its Ameraspeak panel. Um, it's a probability-based panel that targets a demographically representative sample in a much, um, much more rigorous way than I can do using Prolific or MTurk. Um, I... We got over 2,400 participants. In the end, we targeted 2,300. Um, and what did I learn? Okay, so if you go to the next slide and pull up all the animations, there should be like the three same boxes. Um, so as predicted in the cap versus mandate um, comparison, there was no difference in any of the moral stigma measures. Um, in the tax versus mandate, the tax looked actually somewhat morally worse than the... Um, than the mandate, but it was a very small difference. It wasn't something that I felt was economically meaningful. Um, and of course, it's counter to the anti-commodification critique. Um, as predicted, for compliance morality, polluting under the tax or cap was much morally worse than under the mandate. And it was also worse to violate the tax or cap than to violate the mandate. Um, if you go to the next slide, you can just see these confidence intervals for the main differences. So on the left panel is the mandate versus tax, and the right panel is mandate versus the cap and trade. Um, you can see the three overall moral stigma measures, just straight moral stigma, harm, and behavior. And you can see, so the question was asking, how morally bad is it, um, how morally bad is malazine pollution? How harmful is malazine pollution? How likely are you to take these actions? And so you can see that the tax is actually slightly morally worse than the mandate because the mandate minus tax it, um, difference is slightly negative. But as you can see, it's a very small difference that I think ultimately doesn't matter very much. If you go to the next slide, you see under compliance and violation morality, um, here the difference for compliance morality is actually quite large. So um, it's much worse to pollute in compliance with the 
um, tax and cap than it is to pollute in compliance with the mandate. And it's somewhat not super bad, but like somewhat worse to uh, pollute in violation of the tax or the cap and trade than the mandate. Sorry. Um, are we on the difference on compliance? Can we go to the difference on compliance morality matter slide? Um, so you should see a bar chart. I can't tell if I can't tell if you can all see the bar chart, but I'm hoping you can. So it's this, the compliance morality measure is actually quite economically meaningful. So here I have agreement with whether or not the um, company that is polluting compliance with is morally bad. And you can see for the in the mandate condition that they people disagree. It's not morally bad if you're polluting in compliance with the mandate. But they agree it's over fifty if you're polluting in compliance with a tax or cap and trade. So, in other words, you're morally good for complying in compliance for polluting in compliance with the mandate, and you're morally bad for polluting in compliance with the tax or cap and trade. So then I did um, really uh, I did this exploratory mechanism analysis, which I won't have time to get into today. Um, and I find evidence supporting these expressive effects. Sorry, this is the next slide, and you can go all the way through the slide to and maybe taboo trade off. Um, so I find the mediation effects through my structural equation model with expressive effect and an adequacy aversion. I don't find an interaction effect for taboo trade-off, but surprisingly here, over 80% of participants basically said they thought markets and pollution were wrong. And so I may just have not had variation enough variation on that measure to, to see an interaction because in fact, the taboo trade-off just affected everybody. Um, okay, you can go to the next slide. That's just my structural equation model, which I'm happy to talk about in the Q&A. I have another moderation. So the expressive effect is stronger for people who trust the government more, which is not surprising. Um, and then implications. Um, you can go all the way down the implication slide. Market-based regulations didn't reduce the moral stigma of pollution. In fact, it slightly increased it for the tax, though it wasn't meaningful. Um, it was consistent with these competing effects. And um, I think what's interesting about the widespread agreement that the ta that markets for pollution are bad might might be a reason why we continue to see the anti-commodification critique because people lead with their moral emotions and then try to rationalize them. And so if you're just like, oh, icky, why is this icky? Oh, it's because it commoditizes and that seems like what we shouldn't be doing that. Um, Mandates versus market-based regulation make compliance and violation morally better. But this is interesting because that means actually under the market-based instrument, there's less of an incentive to comply. And so even if there, my project found that there was there's no um, reduction in moral stigma, you could see a reduction in like reputational incentives to comply with a market-based instrument. Um, that's of course just a, a sort of side note. Um, if you go to limitations and next steps. Um, repeated exposure might change this. This is a one-time measure. It might matter more for novel harms. Um, I used a novel pollutant, but maybe we have fixed uh, ideas of pollution. But if we do, then we're not that worried about more, the changes in moral stigma because our, our notions of pollution are relatively fixed. Um, and of course, it'd be super interesting to learn how this changes really important subpopulations. So environmental activists who are much more, who are much more important to policy um, and regulated en entities themselves. Um, so that is all I have, and I will stop sharing my screen. Great, now when you're online. Good, great. Great, okay, perfect, great. Well, uh, thanks very much, Sherry and Natalie, for inviting me to the conference uh, today. When Sherry sent me an email uh, inviting me, she said, we really would like to have a tax scholar at the conference. And I've never heard that before in any context. So I had to say yes. Uh, and if I seem awkward, it's because I'm not used to speaking to anyone outside my field. So this is a 
is a great social opportunity uh, for me. Uh, my paper today fits really in uh, well with uh, Jiling and Hajin's papers, I think. Uh, addressing uh, how we levy carbon prices in multi-level systems. So by multi-level systems, I'm essentially referring to almost any form of governmental structure. So most countries are multi-level, either they have a constitutionally established multi-level government like federalism or a treaty uh, established multi-level government like the European Union or administrative delegation. So even a country like France is highly centralized, still has uh, administrative subunits that some cases discretion. Uh, a number of objections or concerns raised with these type of multi-level governments. Uh, there are advantages, but the objections that receive a lot of attention in the literature are that it can lead to this passing the buck problem where if everyone's in charge, no one's in charge. And then a veto problem, you see this sometimes in Canada, where the federal government creates an international environmental treaty, but they need the problems we implemented in the United States and provinces are on board. Uh, and then finally, a whole bunch of coordination problems. So you get patchwork systems, you get national and subnational policies that are conflict, conflicting or not perfectly harmonized. And in carbon pricing, this last objection has received a lot of attention. And a common view, and I come here, Captain Harrison, who's a very prominent environmental scholar in Canada. Oh, great. Is that better? Ooh. That's pretty. Why don't I just use the speaker? Oh. How's that? Is that better? Great. Okay. Uh, and so I have your quote from Catherine Harrison, a very prominent environmental scholar in Canada. And this argument has been expressed el elsewhere that, in particular, when it comes to carbon pricing, these kind of coordination problems are significant. She says that overlapping carbon taxes or permit auction, op, auctions have an additive effect. A polluter faces a much higher cost than intended by either the federal or provincial government, and that this is problematic. And so the impl implication is we really want to avoid two levels of government, both engaging in carbon pricing or in cap and trade programs. And in general, we see that governments are adhering to that recommendation. So most countries that are engaged in some form of carbon pricing either employ a unitary approach, so only one level of a government is engaging in pricing. Uh, examples of that are Australia, where the national government has kind of a fledgling pricing system, and then the United States, where it's a subnational government, it's not all, but some, California and Massachusetts, for example, that are engaged in carbon pricing, but the national government is not. So we see that. We also see a side-by-side -side approach. So in countries where two levels of government are engaged in carbon pricing, they're not levying their prices on the same activities. Uh, so an example of this would be the European Union, which has a EU-wide emissions trading system. You'll see a lot of participant countries in that program have an additional carbon tax, which applies only to activities that are not covered by the EU-wide scheme. So we've got side-by-side -side carbon prices. Some apply to big emitters, some apply to individuals, but in general, the two levels of government are not levying carbon prices on the same actors. Same thing's happening right now in Canada, essentially, that. Uh, we've got two different types of carbon prices. Some provinces rely on the federal government for both. Some levy one and the federal government levies the other. But those two different systems are levying prices on different activities and different people. Uh, what I argue in this paper is that actually there is a rationale for having overlapping carbon prices. And so this neat division, uh, it's very analytically clear what's been recommended in the literature. Uh, but I think there are, at least from a tax policy perspective, some problems with it. 
And so my argument in the paper is this, is that uh, for mechanistic reasons, and there's some technical reasons uh, that I'll explain in a minute, overlapping taxation or carbon pricing is a partial remedy to undertaxation. And in general, we see this in other tax fields. If there are political factors that lead to undertaxation, we want to encourage overlapping pricing or overlapping taxation. Uh, and I think something similar uh, is going on in taxation. So that's the, or in carbon pricing, that's the first point. And then the second point is this, is that the reason why carbon prices tend to be low, and this is perhaps more objectionable uh, or a bear claim, is non-meritorious. So if we've got these non-meritorious reasons why carbon prices tend to be low, uh, then we should put in place institutional structures that correct for that. And I think overlapping taxation is, or overlapping carbon pricing is one way of doing that. So let me explain exactly what I mean here. Uh, and I'll draw here on some of the foundational tax assignment or tax arrangement literature. A lot of this developed in fiscal federalism. Uh, basically, there are three different tax arrangements if you have two levels of government. Uh, the first is you could have the lower level of government, the subnational government, levy the tax exclusively. Uh, and the problem with that tends to be is that if it's a mobile tax base, which generally carbon emissions are, at least a substantial portion of them are, you're going to get uh, depressive, rate-depressing competition and maybe a race to the bottom. And so the best example of that would be estate taxes in Canada and the United States. We don't have an estate tax anymore in Canada. Used to be provincial. There was a true race to the bottom. Every province eliminated it. Uh, same in the United States. Uh, state level estate taxes now have been virtually wiped out. Um, they're still nominally there, but very low. And that's just because there's competition. Uh, so the classic response to that in the tax policy literature is have exclusive national taxation on mobile bases. So uh, much harder to leave the country than it is to move between states. And that can correct the under taxation problem. Um, and then in general, the tax policy literature will say, we don't want to move to concurrent taxation, which is at the other end of this spectrum, because then we get over taxation. So you can think about these three different options as existing on a spectrum of outcomes. Subnational taxation, we're going to get tax competition, lowers rates. Exclusive national taxation will generally be neutral. And then if we have both levels of government taxing, we're going to have excessive rates. Now, the most obvious reason why we'd have excessive rates, of course, is that other things equal, two taxes are likely to amount to something higher than one. Uh, but there's a more complex reason for why concurrent taxation tends to lead to excessive rates, and it has to do with something called vertical tax externalities. And in simple terms, the idea is this, is that when a government's deciding what the tax rate should be, uh, a tax increase will increase its share of the tax pie. Uh, so if we have a 25% rate versus a 40% rate, you go to 40%, your share of that pie is going to get bigger, but the pie itself will get smaller. Uh, and that has to do with avoidance, common avoidance responses that taxpayers engage in when tax rates go up. Uh, best example of this, you raise the corporate tax rate and corporations either defer income, so they don't report as much each year, or they change jurisdiction. And so this is actually, there's been a huge increase in the, or in the quality of our measurements of this elasticity of tax bases over the last 10 years or so. And some of the avoidance responses are really high. So with corporate tax rates, for example, uh, in Ontario, where we are right now, a 1% rate increase in the provincial income uh, corporate income tax base leads to about a 5% decrease in reported corporate income. So it's really high. And that varies for basis. Uh, corporate tax is much higher than, say, labor income. Uh, state tax is even higher. Raise the estate tax, the base goes down substantially. Uh, the key point, though, is when a government is deciding whether to raise its tax rate or not, it's going to compare the size of our bigger share. Uh, that's a positive, but it's going to have to trade that off with it's a smaller pie. So it's going to compare these two effects. 
And if it's revenue maximizing, it's going to try and find a sweet spot. So we don't want to raise rates to 100% because the pie will be too small, uh, but we may not want them at 25%. We could raise more revenue, say, if they're at 40. The key thing about overlapping taxation is this, is if two governments are levying the same base and you increase your tax rate, you get all of the increase from the higher rate, but the lost revenue from a lower base is shared with the other level of government. So the trade-off is very different. Uh, you think about that in, in the United States where the federal government raises about 80% of personal income tax rates or personal income tax revenue. If New York's deciding whether to increase its tax rate, uh, it will get the benefit of the higher rate, but the revenue loss from the smaller pie or smaller base, 80% of that will be incurred by the national government or the federal government. And so the, what that means is that in any system of co-occupied or concurrent taxation, you have incentives for governments to set rates that result in a combined rate, which exceeds the revenue maximizing rate. In other words, there's this structural incentive to engage in excessive taxation. Uh, other ways of, of showing this with graphs as well, um, this is a more detailed one from uh, David Gamage in the United States, but in general, anytime one government uh, increases its tax rates on a shared base, it's gonna decrease the revenue of another level of government. If it's self-interested, it won't take that into account. And so rates will be raised uh, cumulatively too high. Uh, that's the argument. Usually this is seen as a problem, but it's actually a real advantage if you're in an area of taxation, which for non-meritorious reasons is prone to undertaxation. And so my argument in this paper is that carbon pricing is almost certainly one of those fields. So this is from the World Bank, their carbon pricing dashboard. If we look at current carbon prices in jurisdictions that levy carbon prices, and then compare them with the social estimates of the social cost of carbon, uh, we're nowhere close. So the European Union's estimate right now is $183 a ton. Canada's at $192. The United States estimate is, the, the EPA gives us a range between $120 and $340 a ton. Uh, even at the low end of that estimate, we only have two jurisdictions, Sweden and Uruguay, hitting, uh, hitting the social cost of carbon. Every other jurisdiction is really, really low. Uh, and really with no uh, foreseeable timeline of reaching the social cost of carbon. I'll talk more about that in a minute. Uh, question is why this is the case. And sometimes this is framed as a public choice problem that industries have a lot of power and there are concentrated losses and diffuse benefits to combating climate change. And I think all those are true, but if you actually look at the survey data, uh, as soon as there's any cost attached to combating climate change, opposition to carbon pricing or climate measures is very high. And so the politics of this are hard. Uh, probably the most promising approach for a long time was, uh, as Sheeling mentioned, forms of revenue recycling. Uh, paper in Nature, uh, very prominent, recommended that several years ago. Most recent evidence on revenue recycling is it's not moving the needle at all uh, in public support. And so Canada is an example of that. We have lump sum dividends that go to taxpayers. People are generally not aware that they're receiving the money uh, from the carbon price. And when they're told that, they don't care. It doesn't really affect their view, even though most taxpayers are coming out ahead. And so we've got this really tough political problem and a big part of it, and this is why I think it's non-meritorious. It's not that, uh, or it's not meritorious from a social perspective is that in essence, we're gonna bear the social cost of carbon one way or the other. We're either gonna bear it now through the tax or we're gonna be bear it uh, through some combination of environmental effects now and later or we're gonna shift it onto other people. So someone's gonna bear this. And so the question is when and who is gonna bear uh, the social cost of carbon. Uh, so my prescriptions in this paper are, we should essentially do two things, that 
when possible, constitutional interpretation, uh, when courts are determining uh, whether one or two levels of government have jurisdiction to levy carbon pricing, there's a strong instrumental reason for finding that two levels of government do. The concurrent jurisdiction is probably desirable. And what's interesting is, you know, you can debate whether instrumental factors are relevant to constitutional interpretation. Uh, but in Canada, when the Supreme Court considered this issue uh, three years ago, uh, it very much was relevant to their interpretation. So they essentially said there needs to be federal jurisdiction, concurrent federal jurisdiction, because there's a collective action problem or a race to the bottom problem. Uh, second prescription is this, that if you have two levels of government do it, do have jurisdiction, we should aim for overlapping rather than side by side. So both governments should levy a carbon price on the exact same things. And, and that way we get this vertical tax externality problem, which essentially creates these incentives for excessively high rates. That's a problem in most contexts, but I think in this context, uh, given the political problems, uh, these excessive effects are actually just corrective. Uh, I'll briefly conclude with a couple of qualifications. So uh, the first is this, is a big problem, of course, with imposing a carbon price equal to the social cost of carbon tomorrow is that we need some kind of transition to that really high price. And if you want steady graduated increases in carbon prices, much harder to do when you've got two levels of government independently levying their own price. Uh, and that certainly is a problem. Uh, my response here though, is that if you look at the transitional schedules that governments have set, so Canada, for example, it's not even aspiring to reach the social cost of carbon. So Canada, we're at about $65 a ton now. In 2030, I think we'll be at $160 or $170 a ton. If you look at the estimates of what the social cost of carbon is in Canadian dollars by that time, it's going to be well over $300 a ton. So we're nowhere near, uh, I would say these are not really transitional schedules. They're more a form of delay. Uh, and so I think there is a transitional argument, but it's in practice, it's perhaps um, not as significant as it seems. Uh, second objection has to do with passing the buck problem. I think with any system of concurrent jurisdiction, there is this concern about uh, diffusion of responsibility that no one will act, especially when carbon prices are otherwise somewhat unpopular. Uh, the counter argument here is, and I think this is an empirical trade-off, is that if you have overlapping taxes, taxes, you have a system of redundancy, or basically you have duplication. So if you're really concerned that no one will act, if multiple people have the power to act, there's a great chance that at least one will. And so you've got to trade off these uh, the advantage of redundancy with the passing the buck problem. Uh, I'm not sure where the empirics come out on that, and I'm not sure if there is good evidence. Uh, and the final thing I'd say is this has to do with democratic control. Uh, why vertical tax externalities is normally considered a problem is that you create incentive for tax rates that exceed voters' preferences. That actually exceeds everyone's preferences. So the combined rate is going to be higher than any individual government wants or any individual voter. And so you're really weakening democratic control over taxation, which I think in almost every context is a problem. Uh, maybe it's a problem here too. I think uh, if we're creating institutions that lead to these incentives for higher rates and people don't want that, that is a democratic problem. The choice really here is whether uh, weakening democratic control over taxation, if it leads to higher carbon prices, is in the end worth it? And, and that's one of those tough questions I think that we see in all areas of um, of constitutional law, for example, all kinds of anti-democratic uh, uh, elements of constitutional law. Question is always whether they're advancing some value that justifies uh, a limitation on democracy. So that's, I think, part of the, the trade-off or qualification here as well. Uh, so I'll leave it there. Those are three qualifications. I think there are others. I'm happy to talk about those uh, in the questions as well.